Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arder. Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, we welcome Aaron Barda. Aaron runs the Facts of Life site, a pretty comprehensive web page that is everything and anything a fan of the Facts of Life could want to see and read about the show. You can also find it on Facebook. It's also under the Facts of Life site. Aaron and I have messaged back and forth several times over the last four years, and I figured it was high time to get him on here and actually let him talk with us about the show he loves as much as we do. Now, before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping. Last week, you remember the end of Over Our Heads, the decision to close the store, and I had mentioned that Tutti Frutti Peter B. had written into me saying he thought the set was only a makeshift Over Our Heads set, and I said, I didn't see it, but send me in some screen grabs, let me see what you got. Well, he did it. Peter sent them in, and Peter, I thank you for that, and I am actually not through going through them. I want to be sure to really devote the time to uh, getting through them and really analyzing and going back and looking at some of the season eight episodes. Uh, But one thing he did point out is there is some sort of either a tile pattern on the floor or it's like a circular rug under the raised area just below the window that is definitely missing. And a couple of the colors are different. So... Uh, Peter, I did get your message. I am still going through it, and I am not taking this lightly (laughs) one single bit. You've listened to the show long enough. You know me better than that. Anyway, let's get on to this week. Aaron Barta joined us to discuss Season 9, Episode 14, called Peak Skill Law, which had an original air date of January 23rd, 1988. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's Face the Facts with Aaron Barda. Aaron Barda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So where are you located? Are you in Texas at the moment? Yes, I'm in a suburb of Dallas, Texas. So uh, Allen, to be exact, which nobody's heard of before. There's Uh nothing famous here. So. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think the nearest thing to me of a landmark, which they're going to be tearing it down uh, from what I've heard on the news recently is South Fork Ranch, where they shot the TV show Dallas. Or had the no. Yeah. They ain't so. Why are they tearing yeah. it down? Somebody's going to turn it, I think, into condominiums. You know, oh. <laughs> they still give daily tours and they say that it's uh um very busy um because i guess there's still you know a lot of fans of the show as things progress people forget things that were once you know huge and popular but yeah they they're gonna convert it so it was kind of sad to hear that can you imagine what those tours are like how many (laughs) how many 800 year old people are on those tours like talking about jr and shit oh god 
man. It's got to be awful to have some asshole walking you around there and go, <laughs> you may remember on episode seven of season six when Sue Ann was up. Oh, my God. Well, welcome from Texas, Aaron. You know, our, our close, dear personal friend, Paul Padilla, frequent guest on the show, is there in uh, New Braunfels. And, you know, Texas is a very small state. So just a hop, skip, and a jump, I'm sure, for you. Yeah. <laughs> very small, right? <laughs> I'm not a Texas native, so I kind of grew up in an uh, environment like Matthew from the Midwest, small town, farming community. I think that that's kind of some of Matthew's background, if I remember correctly, from the earlier podcast. So I've been in Dallas for about 15 years now. Where so. did you where did you grow up, grow up? Mitchell, South Dakota. It's the home of the world's only corn palace. So I bet you guys have never seen it or heard of it, but you got to Google it and look at a picture. Um, they have a lot of murals on it and onion domes um, and they decorate it. They celebrate wow. the harvest or the crops every year and then they throw a festival and concerts. So yeah. Didn't Matthew, you used to work at a, a an establishment called the Corn Palace? I did just for a short time though. Um they said I got too husky. Husky. <laughs> ah! Husky. Sheboygan. Ah. Thank you, folks. Good night. <laughs> well, you have been brought to us, Aaron, because you are the one who runs the Facts of Life site. You are a fellow Facts of Life super fan, and you have a wonderful Facebook group. And you have uh, let me advertise the show on it. And we've had some interesting exchanges and all that. Uh, you seem to be, at least at first viewing, to be a person uh, significantly younger than ourselves. How and when did you first get into the facts of life? Why is it always younger than us, David? Why is it always younger than ourselves? Speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry. You look much younger than David. What <laughs> yeah. What really got me into this show was I remember it was probably when it was syndicated because it was on in the afternoon. My mom worked overnights and she took a nap. And so I snuck out of me taking my nap and I went to turn on the television. And I remember um, I was horrified and so scared because Blair was killing everybody. And I remember then years later, like, oh, was there an episode where somebody was going around murdering everybody in the over our head store? And so that's where I got interested, probably in 97, 98, um, watching the reruns on USA Network at 7 a.m. in the morning and uh, just watching it and then remembering. I actually thought uh, when I first saw the Out of Peak Skill episode where Charlotte Ray um, departs that they killed her off because I didn't ever see part two. And so I was thinking that the uh, Winnebago went over the cliff and I didn't know because we didn't have internet at the time at the house. So I was just trying to seek and find answers to what happened to some of these, um, to some of these characters and people. And then of course it went back into the Eastland years. I'm like, what is this with all these girls and characters? So um yeah, I just really loved the show from early on and loved the relationships that the girls had. And I think it was in eighth grade when I started the website. Of course, it's evolved over the years. It wasn't that that great of a site. Um, and I learned HTML on my own. And um, yeah, so wow. just, I kind of built the site to, to what it was. And 
Uh, things have kind of calmed down a little bit. I should probably update it to make it more modern because it's kind of a 90s or early mid 2000s looking site. But mm-hmm. yeah, I've always loved it and always just kept it there so people could kind of use it as its wikia for Facts Alive for reach out if they have any questions. So cool. Yeah. So, well, I make, I was born in 68, so I am 54. Okay. So I'm hearing from you as you were born in the early 80s. 83. And- 83. 83. Okay. So yeah, yeah, you are significantly younger than Matthew and me. So. (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker. (laughs) So, well, so you started, yeah, we, I feel like we started young. The show premiered when I was, what is it? What do we say? Nine? It was, it was 70, 79. 30. Uh, Why you, why yada. Uh, so, yeah, so you did grow up watching it a little bit, and you are therefore uh, older than you look. And one of those people who the over our heads years are your facts of life. They are. They are. These but things. I love the Edna's Edibles years. I think season five and season seven are my ultimate favorites. So, oh, yeah. I acknowledge that those are your favorites and that you said those words. <laughs> But let's get talking about season nine, because what could compare to the quality of the episodes we're getting right now in the show's final season? Season nine, episode 14, Peak Scale Law, which had an original air date of January 23rd in 1988. Uh, Let's do some nuts and bolts here, okay? The episode was written by Mark Tuttle. He is credited with writing three episodes. Previously, he wrote A Rose by Any Other Age, where Beverly Ann was dating the younger gentleman. And uh, Future, he's writing the episode, which is actually next week's show, A House Divided. Uh, He is also credited as an executive script consultant for the entire season. And uh, we did talk about him on... um, the arose by any other age, but he was pre- previously a producer and writer on Beverly Hillbillies, Three's Company, Three's a Crowd. And I don't know if we mentioned then Matthew, but Mark Tuttle even wrote one episode of Life with Lucy. Oh, that's probably at, the, probably at the top of his resume. <laughs> which which episode was it? Uh, of, the, no, of the 13. Of the 13. Uh, I, I don't have it handy. Wait a minute. If you want, I can find it. I'm, I'm going to guess it had a name like fucking Lucy buys an umbrella or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Lucy. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. It's not one of the ones that we did on, on the Patreon show. But... It sure wasn't Lucy quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy's green thumb. There it is. God forbid we have not have her the show life with Lucy, not have Lucy in the title egomaniac (laughs) and the episode was directed by john boab all right we can start getting into our analysis but only after aaron barda you are put on the spot as our guest to provide the one to two sentence synopsis similar to what you might see in a tv guide okay are you ready for this one so blair it turns out a law firm that's defending an accused murderer proven innocent who seems guilty. Spot on. Exactly. That's that's the perfect way to do it, where it's like, oh, he's he's innocent. Really? That's how it, this is all going to shake down. Huh. Well, and, and I have to uh, to come truth to you, too, on that description, because I've 
followed the podcast since the beginning. And nobody has actually taken an excerpt from TV Guide. So that is actually from tvguide.com. So I cheated. Shut <laughs> up! Oh, <laughs> it never even occurred to me to go to the TV Guide, actual tvguide.com. And the one sentence that we didn't have at the end of that, Aaron, that we have to put at the end of every single synopsis, who is minding the store? And oh, that's right. We don't have a store anymore. No mention of the store. I guess it's just closed. I guess there's the, the, the new thing we're going to have to watch for in this in the series as it progresses is for how much time we have spent dealing with construction and contractors when they were building Edna's edibles, rebuilding over our heads, adding the bedroom for Natalie and Tootie. This is just like, we're going to close a store. And I suppose as of this week right now, Pippa and Andy have their new bedrooms. Over Our Heads is closed. Merchandise has been sold. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just terrible. <laughs> Over Our Heads is gone. That was the, the one. The fuck did you want? Like every week, new construction going on? It's an 80s sitcom, David. That episode could have taken place six months ago. It, well, there's no timeline in an 80s sitcom. I know. I t- hmm. They're going to marry off Joe in three episodes, for God's sake. Yeah, I guess you're right. You're right. I liked your synopsis. All I had done was Natalie suddenly can't speak in front of people. What in the actual fucking fuck? Come on. I'm sorry. You know, I don't usually like to swear, but I, I was really, really puzzled by that. So that's the only B plot. Should we just get that B plot out of the way? Yeah. And, and talk about that sitcom trope of I can't speak in front of people. You ran for mayor. Yeah. You were you yeah. auditioned for South Pacific. Remember? Yeah. When, when has it has been has speaking in front of anybody ever been an issue? Mm hmm. Maybe because of all the construction around the house, it's uh, caused her to be. Got to be it. That that'll be do it. It's all the, the hammering and the sound of the drills buzzing that's just thrown off her game or something. But uh, yeah, and then the the worst of the the sitcom trope of speaking public, the the worsening of that. Just imagine everybody sitting there in their underwear. <laughs> Is that a thing? Really? You know, I was told that growing up, and it doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't help. Oh. On stage, I was told that growing up, it doesn't help. It just it just you get even more nervous. So I don't know because you're trying to imagine your family naked in the audience. Yeah. You don't want to see. I don't know. It was, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> I I agree. My problem was I always got hard. <laughs> oh no! Stop! Stop! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, remember that to me the sort of uh, the highest. Uh, achievement of that trope is the Brady Bunch when Marsha is nervous at her driving test, her road test, and she imagines the guy in his underwear and it works. And this middle-aged actor has to, in a fantasy shot, if you want to call it a fantasy shot, is there sitting in the car in his uh, t-shirt and boxer shorts. And that gives Marsha the confidence and yeah, I was I was very disappointed that it's like in season nine, this is the type of B plot we're resorting to here, guys. Come on, really? Uh, That's all I have about the B plot. Yeah. 
though at the end when Tootie comes running in, it's like, what happened? Why are you late? And she says, uh, we got stuck in an elevator at school. But Natalie gave a big speech to calm everybody down. And now I think she's cured, except she's afraid to go into elevators now. <laughs> so that was the the sort of closing of that loop of the of the B plot. It's like, really? Ugh. Oh, and 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 just the one other thing I'll add is that do you do you guys remember what it was Natalie had to give her talk about? Crabs. Uh I wish. At least that was something. This might have been cut from the syndicated version. She says it has to be something interesting oh. that happened to me this week. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. that really? So you, you can't talk for 10 minutes, but wow. Huh. So let's start going through the episode. I forget. Have we seen Pippa in an Eastland uniform yet? I can't remember if they've shown us that because these are all just a blur to me. Do you guys remember that? I don't. Uh, we don't have any Andy in this episode. Andy went skiing with Jeremy for the week, according to Beverly Ann. Uh, Jeremy, as Andy's friend, that is canon. That does coordinate affirmatively with season eight, episode 24, Rites of Passage 2. That was the boy he was going to spend the summer with at the cabin on the fishing trip, thinking there were going to be girls swimming in a lake in a bikini, but it was going to be dudes up at 5 a.m., going hunting and uh didn't end up working out but so yeah so jeremy is uh, an existing friend of of andy's and for that we do need to credit the writing for that and that's it that's the only credit we can give the writer because <laughs> the rest of this pile of shit that we are about to wade through just is exhausting it's it's yeah pretty pretty bad but uh do you, are you agreeing with us by the way aaron we're, we're doing our normal shtick in general what did you think about this episode so after re-watching again last night i was falling asleep except for the dinner scene i think that that scene is by far the most entertaining um mm -hmm. when you put a group of characters that are very uncomfortable you, they know the situation the um the guest star is I'm guessing, assuming that they know what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that that scene was the best. I actually made a clip. It was for Thanksgiving to be, and I don't want to go ahead, but I made a clip for my site wishing everybody a happy Thanksgiving. And people were like, oh, there's a Thanksgiving Facts Life episode. I'm like, no, but the turkey makes it seem like Thanksgiving. So people were thinking there was a Thanksgiving episode, but it's actually a clip from this episode because she's serving a big turkey with potatoes and corn and <laughs> yeah yeah that does bring up an interesting point which i did put in my notes was the the implication was that blair has just brought this guy home somewhat unexpectedly that oh we're going to have another one joining us for dinner oh okay and a, a full-on fucking turkey on a platter uh, really like you said if that it was a thanksgiving dinner it's like has been what precipitated this? Why are we having this feast celebrating our alliance with the native people here? Jesus. Or with a murderer or somebody who's being convicted of murder. I mean, they go all out for this, for this stranger. They don't even do that with their own family when their family visits. So well, thank you. Not since <laughs> Mrs. Garrett and her Chinese food feast. Mm -hmm. So the actual meat of the plot here that we're getting to, it's called Peekskill Law, a little play on L.A. law, because L.A. law happens in L.A. 
And this show, Peak Skill Law, happens in Peak Skill. So, <laughs> Blair receives a note that Harrison and Joseph, a very prestigious local attorney firm, has asked her for an interview because she has applied there for an internship. And uh, in passing, she says, this is a really big deal of a law firm if I can get in there. They're the ones defending that husband in that big murder trial that's going on right now. And everybody is all like, oh yeah, we know all the facts. That's right. Oh yes, Karina Darren, the big fashion designer, Bellagio Designs, who was allegedly killed by her husband, Clark Darren. A lot of evidence saying that he did it, even though they've never recovered the body. We're just the friggin' exposition house right now. But they found the carjack with her blood on it. And therefore guilty as charged. But that's never mentioned again. The murder weapon is never mentioned again. Mm -hmm. So I, oh, I called this episode legally Blair. <laughs> <laughs> During all that exposition at the beginning, we get our my first punchable Pippa moment of the episode okay when she goes murder in peak skill what's to kill for in peak skill go the fuck home pippa <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to sit around and talk about how shitty peak skill is why don't you head back to the bonza <laughs> <laughs> the outback where you're home alone because your dad's always off working stop it so then we go to the law firm. The secretary brings Blair in for the interview. Uh, this secretary is played by Kathy Connell. Kathy has a few acting credits, but the most interesting thing on her resume is in 1995, she was on the board for the Screen Actors Guild and she led the board toward creating the SAG Awards. And she has produced the TV broadcasts of them ever since their inception. Because Hollywood needed another reason to pat themselves on the back i think and smell their own farts absolutely <laughs> blair asks whether she was going to be interviewed by mr harrison or mr joseph and the secretary's like yeah they're dead they're they're just the names on the firm that <laughs> we have a junior partner that are that is going to be interviewing you and in to our great surprise walks professor cat from season nine, episode three, rumor has it just 12 weeks prior. And could he immediately be creepier? No, he could not. So First creepy. First of all, somebody get Blair hair and makeup. Because when she takes off her coat, it puts a part in her hair that just drove me nuts. <laughs> and it just proves once again, the words Let's take that again, are never said on the set of Facts of Life season nine. <laughs> At this point, they're like, just fucking go. But I needed <sighs> somebody to come in and rebrush her hair at that. But I wrote down, could he be creepier? Get away. Uh, yes. And and throughout the whole thing, to the point where you're like, were, were they thinking at some point in, in the land of backdoor pilots that this could be the next show and eventually be working toward a romantic thing going on here because, ooh, not working. She's got Paul Provenza and his bulge, all right? Yeah. Step back, Mr. Cat. Well, Mr. Cat, he set, states in the show, correct, that he specifically ran across her application and chose her? I believe he said, I came across your application. No. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> does, does he not? 
Does he not? He probably does. I don't, I cannot refute that. So the actor is Frank Luz. Remember Frank with a C and which is a very French Frank and then Luz, L-U-Z, which is a Spanish name. Confused me then, confuses me now. Uh, If you recall, when we discussed him before, he had done 90 episodes of The Doctors, which was a short-lived but popular enough soap opera from 1979 to 1980. And uh, yeah, he is always standing a little too close to her. And she kind of shies away and he talks about their past false accusations about having an affair. And she says, well, I'm certainly willing to work here if you're willing to have me, but that's not going to be a problem for your wife who accused us of having the affair. And he says, no, 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 the wife is not a problem. They are now thankfully divorced. So it's like, uh, yeah, thankfully for her, you creepy motherfucker. And he was known at the school for having a roving eye and, you know, Russian hands and Roman fingers, as they say. (laughs) He remembered what an astute and legal mind she had. Wasn't she in his class for like two days in her first year beginning law class or something? Yeah. And he thought, that's the girl. That's the girl. Okay. She was there long enough for the, I'm a mean professor and I'm going to be so hard on you. I'm going to whip you into submission and kick you in the nuts because that's how much I care about your education. And uh, yeah, you're right. She was, no, there is nothing here connecting this. And here's my thing. I was thinking to myself, why him? Why did we have to bring back Professor Cat? What, what did that buy them? Do you think this maybe would have been one of those possible spinoff ideas for closing? Yes, they were throwing anything at the wall. They were creating Legally Blonde, for God's sake, before it was Legally Blonde. Yeah, no, it's true. And L.A. Law was popular. I would have turned it in. I usually save this for the end, but since you brought the whole matter up, I would have turned this into more of a Lou Grant situation. And Aaron, you're too young to know what that reference is. But Mary Tyler Moore. Right. But the Lou Grant show, it was a drama. So I would have I would have done that because Lisa Welchel has proven that she has the the chops. And I would have given her a little bit more of a kind of a a serious sitcom or with um with him and her and will they won't they? And maybe what's his pussy shows up every once in a while with his bulge and Yeah. But why Professor Cat? My thing was in my brain, I'm thinking, could this have been just a guy who comes in, interviews her and says, you've got the job. The only thing I can think of where they're like, okay, if we just want to get on to the business with the dude and the murderer, this does give us a little bit of a shortcut where, oh, I I know the guy that's interviewing me. Oh, you were my student and I knew that you were applying. So this kind of is a quick way to bring in Blair and have her there. I I think I understand why they did it. I just wish we had liked Professor Cat more in that other episode because he wasn't that likable. He was a creeper and presented as a creeper and, and really did not make much of a case that that was not true. And this, oh my God, this one, this is definitely confirming how fucking creepy he is. And, and later, and references later with, with all that. So uh, I'm, I am here for that, Matthew, your idea, but I want someone else. I don't want this dude, but to give 
Facts of Life, an hour-long drama spinoff with Lisa Welchel. <laughs> the Facts of Law. Oh my God, <laughs> genius. But greenlit, it is greenlit. Sending that in the, in the time machine, it will be greenlit before it even arrives. So this big WTF moment happens. Maybe you all saw something I didn't, but this made 0.0 logical sense to me. What didn't make sense to you? What didn't make I, sense? Does the sec I think the secretary calls him on the intercom, doesn't she? <clears throat> and says, Clark Darren is here in reception. And he says, well, tell him I'll see him in a minute. And then he gives Blair some stuff to put away. He being Professor Cat, this dude, creepy dude. So then we're out in reception and Clark Darren acting like a fucking dick just walks right into the office past the secretary who's like, oh, he said he's not ready to see you. And he just blows right on into the office. And then when he's there, Blair is putting away stuff and starts talking to him as though she doesn't know who he is, which then gets her talking about, oh, oh, that Darren dude, he's totally fucking guilty. I can't believe they're defending him. It's like, if you know so much about the case, you've never seen his picture in the paper, nor did it occur to you that when they said this dude is in reception and then someone walks in. Am I right that it was weird how they had to construct this moment of Blair talking to him about himself, not knowing it was him? Well, I mean, yeah, but yeah. I mean, of all the things that they constructed for this episode, that was probably my least thing I was worried about, oh. if, I'm being, if I'm being honest. Okay. Well, it was very weird for me. To me, we didn't have to have the secretary call. It could have just been here, Blair, put away whatever. And yeah. then have the guy come walking in and have be like, oh, hey. And then, you know what I mean? Why did, why did it have to be announced that Clark Darren is there? That, anyhow, okay, I'll leave it go. We have plenty more to discuss, true. Hey, I have a quick question. Have we passed the living room scene with Tootie and Natalie? Because I, I have a, a bone to pick with the writers. I know you guys love to talk about the writers. And I don't know if we're gonna. Yeah, pick our bones. Go for it. Okay, so I I'm not good at acting. I'm not, you know, I was never on the theater side, more on the music side. However, I hate this joke. It's used in every sitcom. I don't find it funny. I don't know why writers still write this joke. It's like a TV trope. Um, it's where Natalie's talking to Tootie in the living room. I think Tootie's sitting at the desk in front of the couch, and Natalie says. No one is interested in what I'm saying. And Tootie goes, oh, excuse me. What did you just say? I hate that joke. It's not funny. <laughs> it, it's two minutes of crap. It, it, I think this is the, the first time that I've caught that this show has actually used that in the nine years. But every sitcom does it. I think Golden Girls, Roseanne, all mm -hmm. of them. Am, am I wrong? I think it falls in the in, into the same line as um, I'm pregnant. How did this happen? <laughs> kind of that kind of thing yeah it's just a trope it's an easy old school vaudevillian joke that one audience laughed at once about 70 years prior yeah yeah let's talk about this dude playing clark darren the actor is alan autry after this 
from 1988 to 1995, he would play Captain V.L. Bubba Skinner on all 146 episodes of In the Heat of the Night. The Carol O'Connor cop show. Again, hour-long drama, Carol O'Connor cop show. All eight seasons. That show was on for eight seasons. That's as long as All in the Family. That is longer than Archie Bunker's place. That freaking crazy. Wow. After that, he would play Rick Bradshaw on 23 episodes of Grace Under Fire. In That was sort of in the middle of its five-season run. That was 95 to 96. Uh, but he was on all six episodes of Style and Substance yeah. with Gene Smart and Nancy McKeon in 1998. So Nancy McKeon would go on to work with him again. He was playing Gene Smart's handyman, I suppose. But uh, yeah, we talked about him when we did the episode of Style and Substance on the Patreon show. Uh, and most recent credits are writing, directing, and acting in three different uh, independent faith-based films. So this conversation happens. All it is is basically Blair sticking her foot in her mouth, saying that, oh, this dude is guilty. He's so fucking guilty. He's like a fucking killer murderer ass bag. And then in comes Cat again. And he's like, Blair, meet uh, Blair, meet Clark Darren. Whoa, she's just been maligning him. So they send Mr. Darren into the other room and we get a little uh, lawyer speak with Professor Cat and Blair of him emphasizing the whole Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. That's a very important tenet of the American legal system. Yes, it is. But is it the defense attorney's job to believe that their client is innocent? I don't believe it's their job to think he's innocent. It's their job to make sure that the law is is practiced correctly in how he is tried. You know, yeah. I, like that whole thing where you have to believe that they're innocent. I don't know that anybody on OJ's team believed he was innocent. They just had to put a reasonable doubt in the jury's mind. And when she's got going on about how he slapped his wife in front of a room full of people and he goes, let's just string him up. Yes, let's. Yeah. Fuck. Oh, that killed me that they just blew past that. And then all of a sudden at the end of the episode, he's scot-free. Spoiler alert. He's get, he gets, gets off scot-free. I didn't. Well, I think that if it was a, like a public defender, it is the public defender's job. If you are assigned an attorney, then yeah, it is their job to make sure that all the ducks are in a row and all that stuff. I think in this case or in an OJ case where you're a rich person who can afford a, a high powered attorney, I think it's kind of like a, again, contrary to this episode, I think it's more of a, it doesn't matter whether he's guilty or innocent. It's can we either provide legally compelling evidence that he is innocent or, and punch holes in the prosecution's case because he's basically paying us for his freedom. So uh, whatever the billable hours are, that's what matters more than innocent versus guilty. Don't they have like a track record if they lose a case? Like nobody will want to them to be legally represented by them. So that's why he was telling Blair, you have yeah. to believe. Is that just kind of some advice? Because he yeah. even mentioned 
He goes, well, not at the time. Or, or no, he said at the time, yes. Or I might have that confused. He said after, no, I don't believe everybody was innocent. I think he tells Blair that. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the easy fix for this that we can send back in the time machine is that all he needs to tell her is there is a lot of other information and evidence in this case that no one in the public, including you, can possibly know that actually we can use to draw a compelling case that he didn't do it. And I believe based on this evidence that he didn't. And Blair can be like, oh, really? Wow. And write it in the dialogue. It's like, Blair, the court of public opinion is not the same as the court of law. So, uh, you know, there's a kind of an easy fix to it, but I'm with you, Matthew, where I, I'm not sure I believe that it's that they teach that in law school. If you're defending a person that 40 witnesses saw walk over and stab somebody and you're trying to get them not convicted of murder, yeah. I, I don't I don't know how that works either. Law students, any lawyers, any attorneys, you know, our audience is is highly educated professionals um in in my mind so if anyone has any insight please let us know comment on the facebook or send us a note listeners and i get why they had to make the character like for us in an 80s sitcom they had to make it like so we were believed he was the murderer and how was blair gonna get him out of it because he slapped her in public. They found the jack with her blood on it, which we never hear about again. Never. The judge judge doesn't ask about that or anything. But it, it, I just, like, why didn't they make him the model husband? Why would he kill his wife, you know? Like, they could have made it so it was plausible that he was innocent, because I'm still not sure that he wasn't at the end of this. He slapped her in public? They yeah, thought, I mean, oh, he doesn't seem real sweet and likable at dinner. I'll be no. honest. And it no. was a black tie event. It was a too, black tie dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. And here's the thing. They could have made a more interesting and dimensional case for this if they had just cut the Natalie storyline. Why do we have to have a B story when for how many years we've been doing singular A stories? Let, come on, let's roll up our sleeves and jump in with both feet at creating this possible Blair as a law student intern TV show. They they could have gone further with it and uh, and we could have not had the terrible Natalie storyline, which just really feels like filler. So somehow, somewhere, I, I don't know why, did, did you gather or glean why it ends up that Blair calls home and they're like, guess who's coming to dinner? Clark Darren. Why? Why is Blair bringing him to the house? Does he not? I mean, he's out on bail. Well, and I would have thought that the attorney representing Clark Darren would have been there as well, right? But instead it's an intern? Yeah, I if I were on trial for a murder I didn't do, I would be like, oh, your, your intern that you hired 10 minutes ago is inviting me to dinner? I mean, granted, she looks like Blair, I suppose, but, and, and, you know, Hey, he's now single and on the market again, ladies. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that was a big puzzle question mark to me. Uh, but we're at commercial right now. And Aaron Barda, you know, commercial time is when we like to get to know our guests a little bit better. And 
I can tell you, this is one of the instances where it's not uh, an established friend that I already have that I'm asking to the show. You and I literally met on this Zoom call a, a short while ago. So uh, tell me who you are. Who is Aaron Barda? Are you, do you work? Are you a student? Are you an international spy slash speedo model? <laughs> well, I already gave you a little bit of background about where I grew up, but uh, so kind of something that you and Matthew are involved with professionally, I'm not involved with that professionally, was I majored in music in college. So I have a bachelor's degree in vocal music um, and uh, never was in, I was scared of acting. So I have a deep admiration for what you two do, how you memorize lines and get into character. I think it's amazing because I wish I had the guts to do that. But if there were, I always said, if there was a musical where the lead could just sing and dance and come on stage and do that and leave, and then you all do the lines, I'd be down for it. I'd do it, right? <laughs> uh, there is none. But uh, I, I had a huge musical background um, growing up and got my college degree in that. I don't work in in anything musical. Um, I kind of had an interesting career path. I was raised in a grocery store. Uh, my father was a grocery store manager and my great grand, my parents met in a grocery store from my great grandmother, you know, um, blah, 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 blah. But um, I worked for Kroger for 15 years. And just until recently, I um, kind of expanded out into the money services industry um, that I had experience with at Kroger. So I've done a lot of teaching and training. I was going to be a music teacher at one point in my career. And I said, no, I want to make just a little bit more money than a teacher and, um, you know, have a little bit more um, challenges. And so that's where I got into retail and kind of maneuvered into this money services stuff. So now I maintain the licensing for our organization so we can sell our products and we can do the business. Uh, otherwise, if we don't have our licenses, we can get in trouble. So uh, ah. that's kind of in a nutshell. Yeah. Now, now, do you, I've heard you sing, David, on the podcast, and it seems like you have a great voice. I've never heard Matthew sing. Matthew, do you sing? Mm, I wouldn't call it singing. Uh, I would call it singing with a capital S. I, I mean, think Matthew's I an mean, amazing singer. In the way that, like, is Bette Midler really a singer? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, like, she is. Uh, I think she is. She's okay. great. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, Matthew's an, an, an accomplished was, and talented singer. Was Judy Garland really a singer? You know what I like? Was Merman a singer? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like that. Like, no, like Michael Crawford is a singer. Sarah Brightman is a singer. Um, Maria Callas is a singer. Kathleen Battle is a singer. I am not that. Yeah, as, I'm, I'm Bette Midler. I'll rip your heart out with a thumb. But <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, you want to hear uh, Matthew's alter ego, Carol Lee, sing, you can go to Matthew's Facebook page. And here's a lot okay. of videos from the the uh, days back when Carol was doing bingo. And then she would come home, wash up, take off all her makeup, and then sing a song. And uh, those are always delightful and funny. And like you say, tear at the heartstrings. And uh, yeah, no, I thank you for, for saying that you perceive I'm a good singer from the singing I've done on the pod, because uh, sometimes I listen to it and go, ooh. You have a natural vibrato. Uh, I oh, do. I say that. Yes, very natural you vibrato. Can, and you you're throwing a cap through it. Hey, hey, <laughs> why, okay, okay. 
<laughs> Throwing your stones from your glass house. How dare you? Girl, I, can <laughs> I can drive a truck through my vibrato. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it works when I do my Mrs. Garrett, my Mr. Drummond. But yeah. I miss that. We haven't heard that in a while. You know, it you has been a hot said, minute. You could have done a, a segment on these podcasts and said, if Mrs. Garrett was still here, how would have they incorporated her into these plots and episodes? I couldn't imagine her in Seven Little Indians or um, some of the episodes that they did. But There it is. You just hit upon it. You have fixed this episode, Aaron. When Blair shows up to the law office and they say the junior partner will be the one to do your interview, Mrs. Garrett should be the one to walk into the office and ever be like, Mrs. Garrett, what? And ever be, I'm also an attorney. I left Bruce down in Africa and I thought I'd start practicing law again. And that's your spinoff. Yeah, she brings her big old 200 pound sewing machine into uh, give Blair, well, I guess it would be Blair a, a robe, right? To so sew Blair a robe would be the judge. So her a judge's <laughs> robe. That's it. And there it is. It'll be like, Mrs. Garrett, you're an attorney? Oh, that's right. You were also a, a cab driver and a nutritionist and a registered nurse and a nuclear physicist yeah. and a drug lord. And there it is. That's what it should have been. <laughs> and then I could still be doing my Mrs. Garrett impression. <sighs> anyway. Well, we are so happy you were able to do the show with us. I had thought it would be fun to get a, a fellow super fan of the facts of life. And again, to get someone on the show who is uh, so, so very, very much younger than Matthew and myself. But Aaron, enough about you. We've got to figure out what is going to happen when a murderer comes to dinner. My first question of this scene, can I just ask it? Please. You know I love me some Diana Eden. You oh, know yes. I do. Why does Joe match the tablecloth? <laughs> Her uh, dress she... is exactly the same color as the tablecloth and the napkins that I she's holding. I did not notice that. <gasps> the one thing about Joe, her fashion, I will say... As her hair has been growing, I'm less aware of how long and stringy Nancy McKeon's hair is in this season because it's been kind of a gradual buildup, but it is softer. It is more feminine. And this week and next week in particular, she's wearing more skirts. And yeah. definitely there's, it seems like she's gotten out of her tomboy Paula Poundstone phase. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm liking it. It's, it's nice. Still wearing flats, of course. Not, not a heel in sight. Her but, hair's uh, better than the mullet. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you can tell which one was George Clooney and which one was Nancy McCann in some of those scenes. <laughs> True. They had the same hair. And, of course, don't forget <laughs> Flyman. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. We have another Punchable Pippa moment coming up, I believe, Matthew. Did you write it down? What what's what's the what what is it? I'm this one my... is where while he's sitting there, she says, "I got a question. What's the sting for croaking someone in this country? Is it a plop down in the sizzle seat? Ugh. Really? Come on. Uh, what is the I sting didn't... for croaking someone? Is it a plop down in the sizzle seat?" Really? Really? 
So that was, I thought that was going to be a punchable Pippa moment. It was for me. I don't know if it was for you. I I had already knocked her out earlier. So, yeah. (laughs) So um, I will agree with Aaron in saying that this scene was full of comedy gold um, and the payoff when he pulls out that knife and, and Cloris Leachman throws herself on the ground. Yeah. Yes. I did laugh out loud. Cloris and they all Lee. duck under the table. It's yeah. it's broad, it's cartoonish, it's a little ridiculous, but it is very, very funny. And we don't get a lot of ensemble work from them. We really don't give them the chance to kind of collectively build something. It's always broken up into pairs and triplets. It's like those episodes of Friends when they were, were all at home, all doing the same thing. Those were always, I, I always enjoyed those a lot. I was going to ask you all your opinion on Cloris Leachman during that scene, because I was expecting her after seeing it again, because she's more broad, you know, with her comedy. I felt like she was kind of hindering back herself, like when um, uh, he grabs the knife from her and she she subtly like does the choking. I thought that I thought the direction was odd because I felt like she would have been more broad with that to to get the joke across. I got it. But um, knowing kind of how Cloris Leachman is, is that just me? Or or did you think that she did that part just right? I thought that she could have been a little bit more. And I love Cloris Leachman. But I thought that she would have been a little bit more kind of wacky like Cloris is. I can tell you, likely as an actress, it was, okay, how do I balance the line of being broad and ridiculous and making sure this is a comedy, but also plausibly doing these right in front of the face of the man that I'm doing them about. So uh, that's, that's all I could think of. I, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I think, you know, Cloris always kind of seems to find the the right way to do things in spite of the material. I don't know, Matthew, what do you think? No, it didn't stick out to me. So, I, I mean, but who am I to insult Cloris Leachman's technique? Mm-hmm. I mean, she has eight Emmys. I only have the one. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do have, speaking of Texas, uh, Aaron, we do have a Lisa Welchel Texas moment after the big broadness of the dinner where he basically says, I feel insulted and I'm getting out of here. And he leaves. Blair turns to them and says, well, you finally succeeded at driving that poor man out of the house. I hope you're happy. A very wide, I hope you're happy. And then there's another one. She, there's a couple of times, and I don't know if it's because Alan Autry does have a Southern accent. He is a Southern dude and typically plays Southern characters. He's not really playing it up here, but I wonder if it's because she was just hanging around talking with him too much. Uh, on the show, but did you notice her little her little slip up there? No. Okay, fine. Just me. It's just me. <laughs> I but loved then- how Lisa Welch was sitting around the table and she was kind of reacting to everybody else's reaction, and um, she was in her own little world compared to all the other characters at mm-hmm. that dinner. She she's amazing. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Agreed. She- Agreed. Uh, oh, oh, and later she's wearing that yellow shirt with a really swirly rope-like design. Mm-hmm. That's a very country Western uh, shirt, that yellow shirt she has on in the next scene. Uh, and it's just like, okay, interesting. We have a lot of a lot of Texas Southern influence coming out. 
Uh, but at this point in the show, she does say to all of them, I think he's innocent. Somehow she has had a change of whatever. We're not really sure why other than because the creepy cat dude told me that I had to think that. But uh, anyway, so it is mentioned somewhere that the next day, tomorrow, this dude Barkley, who worked for the murdered lady's company, is going to be taking the stand. And Karina's family took out an insurance policy on her, which is also weird. And uh, that's just more expositional stuff. And then... Uh, I literally have no more notes to this episode, except one line I wrote it at the end. What the fuck just happened? Yeah, it's so true. The, the next scene is just packing peanuts as far as it's Blair working on the case and Joe and the girls are like, what are you doing? I'm working on the case. You know, help me out. You guys pretend to be other people. You pretend to be Mr. Darren and you be this and that. And then, and, 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 and it's just, it's just packing peanuts. It's just silliness. And, and uh, I know. but it does give Blair the idea that they never did find Karina's body. Blair suddenly has this hunch that Karina could still be alive. In fact, she says something like, I would bet my fortune on it. Karina is still alive. We dropped that note at minute 17 of a 21 minute episode <laughs> that yes. they've never found her body. Didn't they say that at the beginning? Did they? Because if they did, I missed it. Because when they dropped that bomb, I was like, what? You know what? Let me give me one second. I'll look it up. He's very thorough, Aaron. I hope you didn't have anywhere to be, my darling. Oh, no. I reserve this just for you all. Oh, oh you're so you're sweet. sweet. And, and you gave me my Christmas gift, Matthew and David, because I was... told Matthew, I said, all I want for Christmas is to do an episode of the podcast. That'll be yeah. the best Christmas ever. <laughs> oh, wait till you get my wish list, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> I, I do accept payment in kind. As, as, uh, <laughs> That's what Dick Burton used to call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so glad to make your, your Christmas dreams come true. We're happy to have you here. I did pull up the script from subslikescript.com. And at the beginning, when they say, I was so shocked when Karina was killed, I wonder where her body is. And someone says, oh, they'll find it sooner or later, but they have enough evidence against Darren. They found his jack handle in his car with her blood smeared all over it. The judge doesn't want to hear about any of that? No, apparently not. That that yeah. doesn't matter. What's the, the deal with it? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So similar to Legally Blonde, where our pretty blonde uh, protege here gets a hunch and then does kind of a wild stunt. So then we get to when we get to the court scene, by the way, the judge is played by Tony Steedman. Uh, he has 140 credits and a 42 year career, but pop culture enthusiasts will probably most likely remember him that he played Socrates in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So this is Blair's idea that she basically asks Tootie to show up in court in a veil, in a black dress and a veil in disguise, and then when Cat finds out about it, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And this had better work. And he's all in and starts playing to it. 
and then actually says, well, could she still be alive? Didn't you take out insurance policy? Couldn't this be a whole thing to do some insurance fraud? Let's go ask the woman in the veil. And the dude on the stand says, it's a bluff, Karina. Don't say anything stupid. Like I just did. And in that moment, he has literally just confessed to the whole thing. So take him into custody. Really? Really? He's a, I mean, I, I, I don't have any acting blood in me, but he was a horrible actor, I thought. I, mean, <laughs> I could have done that scene better with that horrible writing, but I don't know. <laughs> it just... <laughs> well, no. the that thing was. is that this bizarre thing of, and again, the trope of a woman showing up in court in a veil. Uh, you want to try to go to the Orange County Courthouse in downtown Orlando wearing a black veil that conceals your face? Good luck. I yeah. wish you Godspeed at getting in that building past security. It's easier to get into the goddamn Pentagon than it is the Orange County fucking mm-hmm. Superior Court. Yeah. Jesus Christ. To get I've your passport renewed. Yeah. It's, oh you're not God. on trial for murder. You just have to go and pay a, a ticket or something. It's like, really? You think TSA are assholes? These baby Hitlers that run that place. Oh my God, the cattle prod is out. Mm. They're doing full body cavity search on everybody that walks through that fucking thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus H. And that's why Matthew goes through three or four times a day. Yeah, yeah. I like to put a, a knife in my pocket for the first trip. And then <laughs> um, got a, I got a gun in Betty Lou's handbag for the second trip. <laughs> And then I tell them I've hidden a cigarette lighter somewhere <laughs> just to make it fun. So the twist at the end of this, not only that with this one statement, suddenly it's like, oh, well, all the evidence and the blood doesn't matter. Clearly, this is insurance fraud. Mr. Darren, you're free. The charges have been dropped. This dude's going to go into custody. And then uh, Tootie comes running in. She's like, oh, sorry, I'm late, but we got stuck in the elevator, like I mentioned earlier. And then it's like, well, then. Who's the woman in the veil? And the woman in the veil walks over dramatically, raises the veil, and it's Beverly Ann. Surprising no one. Yeah, surprising no one to no reaction from the audience. And and it's like, yeah, because we saw that coming a mile away. When they do finally, after the moment of silence, they kind of do a, "Ah, I guess, where are you supposed to? I've said it before, Aaron, you know, as a faithful listener, if there's ever the argument that they did not use a laugh track, this is one of those moments where they should have, they could have and should have sweetened this to get a laugh or at least a titter of, or, oh, when she took the veil off. And then she says, also dramatically, I always wanted to be an actress. Did you? Did you? Did you? I'm not sure that I've ever gotten that out of Beverly Ann. You play piano beautifully, and we barely see you yeah. do that on the show. But uh, anyway, so mm. that's it. I and love then- that line from her because it was so weird and like Cloris Leachman, right? Like she can make a just a weird line funny because yeah. her character's kind of, kind of like that right i just thought that was hilarious i like weird humor like that so i i laughed out loud for that well the final lines of the episode are very much seemingly like they are setting up a possible 
backdoor pilot and or something romantical between the two of them. I don't know where Casey is in all of this, but uh, he says, well, Miss Warner, with this new development and your little stunt, I can promise you two things. You won't get a salary and I'll probably get a raise. And she says, great, then you can buy me a cup of coffee because you're not creepy enough at work when we're in the office alone. There was that, oh, oh, when he was trying to demonstrate the innocent until proven guilty thing, he shuts the door and says, well, Miss Warner, we're in a room alone now. People could say that something is going on. And then it's like, okay, d don't, okay? Like, you. <laughs> I mean, ugh. creepy. And then to try and give us this last moment of, well, they're at a little bit of a better understanding. This is This is the beginning of a beautiful partnership. It's like, no, he's still a creeper and nothing we saw made any sense. And I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable. I'm glad the credits are rolling right now. Yeah. A girl power person in me would have had Mr. Cat walk into the office and have Blair get up and go, nope. But, you know, that's just, that would have been the end of the episode. So yeah. Yeah. We would have had or, to find another plot. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or had there be an epilogue where he shows up in his office and she's sitting behind the desk and she's like, I've been promoted to partner. <laughs> I'm yeah. your boss now. Since I'm a first year law student, <laughs> everybody. Yep. Hey, if Mrs. Garrett can be a drug lord and run a suicide hotline and manage a Denny's in the overnight hours, okay. Blair Warner. But her being a drug lord is plausible. Here's the thing. <laughs> You've got that's Pete the most Skill, possible, <laughs> which has this great law school in it, apparently. And how many law firms are sitting around peak skill that they're just begging for interns and they can't find any, so they got to go to a first. I don't just okay, I, mm. Mm. yeah, anyway. No, I, I hear you, darling. <laughs> All right, final thoughts, Aaron Barda. Go, I love the dinner scene. That's my recap. And okay. I love, of course, Lisa Welchel, and I love her Lisa Welchel's hair. I think it looks amazing in this episode too. Mm -hmm. And teaser next week, it looks fan fucking bloody tastic. That's all I'm gonna say. So, Aaron Barda, we're at the end of the episode, and we're so happy we were able to get you on, and that you were able to be a part of this journey before we run out of episodes. It's been delightful yeah. meeting you and getting to know you. No, thank you so much. I was glad to be here and a uh, nice early Christmas gift for 2022. So I really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Oh, so Aaron, thank you so much. And we hope to talk at you again really soon. We'll see you. We'll see you in the comments on the face place. I will message you, Aaron, my Christmas list. Um, okay. But I, I will just let you know it does involve... Um, Feet picks and underwear picks. I'm just throwing that out. You can, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm a sucker. <laughs> In more ways than one. Thank you again, darling. Smooches and goodbye. Mwah. And there you have it. That was Aaron Barda. The Facts of Life site can be found on Facebook or at televisionhits.com slash facts of life. I will put these links in the show notes. 
Next week, we're going to be watching Season 9, Episode 15, A House Divided. And our guest is going to be returning podcast guest, Jamie Lynn Marcus. We've already recorded the show. We had a great time. I cannot wait for you to hear it. You can watch the episode ahead of time for free at dailymotion.com. I will post a link in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.